talk about the recent Kansas Supreme Court decision. Uh, however, at second look, I think we're, we've stayed in that series because within the Kansas Supreme Court decision of, of recent uh, publication, there is a huge cultural lie that we're going to get into. So I, right now I'm just going to give you a very brief thumbnail background or kind of history uh, uh, over the next four minutes and then uh, we'll go on from there. And I'm going to start with our Kansas Constitution has a Bill of Rights and it says all men are possessed of equal and inalienable natural rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, that was adopted by the, what they call the Wyandotte Convention in 1859. Uh, and and this, Kansas was admitted to the Union in 1861, as I understand. And the early Kansas legislators outlawed abortion at the point of quickening, which according to their understanding, when, the, when you could feel the baby move, that's when it was alive. That was all they knew at that point. Fast forward here to the late 1960s. Okay, I've got a little bit of an echo, Derek. I'm not sure what that is. It doesn't sound normal, but anyway, we're fine. Uh, and along came what they called the sexual revolution, and uh, which was convenient for abortionists, of course. And Kansas became one of the early states, the second or third state in the union, to allow abortions under certain circumstances before Roe v. Wade. Uh, and eventually, Kansas became a, sort of an abortion mecca. People would come here from all over the country for abortions, particularly late-term abortions, with Dr. George Tiller and others who set up shop here. And there were efforts to try to restrict abortion over the years. Uh, I was involved with some of those early efforts, largely knocking my head against the wall, as, as many others tried. However, when Governor Brownback was elected, we had the opportunity of pro-life legislature, pro-life governor, and we started to enact restrictions on the practice of abortion. And in 2015, uh, Governor Brownback signed into law a bill prohibiting a method of abortion called dismembership. And that's what it is, literally, or dismemberment. Uh, and then uh, that was challenged immediately by the abortion doctors, and Shawnee County District Court Judge Larry Hendricks enjoined, or he stopped that law from going into effect, and that injunction was what was appealed to the Kansas Supreme, to the Kansas Court of Appeals, and ironically on January the 22nd of 2016, the Court of Appeals deadlocked seven to seven. And when you deadlock, you don't change the district court ruling. It stays in effect. So that was appealed to the Kansas Supreme Court, and more than three years later, on April the 26th of this year, the Kansas Supreme Court makes what many consider to be the most important decision by a Kansas court ever. Uh, it made national news and will probably be used by others. Their, their opinion will probably be used in other states. Uh, now, if you've been listening to the news, you've heard about things happening. Uh, Alabama passed a law that basically banned, if not all, most of abortions. Many of the states are now passing laws like Missouri to ban abortion after a fetal heartbeat or very early in the pregnancy. And so the hope is, uh, among people, is that one of these cases is going to work its way up to the United States Supreme Court. And with a, what we understand, we think we have a five to four pro-life majority on the United States Supreme Court, perhaps Roe v. Wade will be limited, if not overturned. However, even if that happens, it's highly unlikely that will have any effect on Kansas because of what the Kansas Supreme Court has said. So, uh, we've assigned to Chris the young, youngest here, the task of distilling 115 pages of largely fallacious legal argument into 15 minutes. So that's what he's going to do right now for you. Then I'm going to come in and talk 
a little bit about the dissent in the case and some exhortation. Then Eric Rucker's going to come up and talk about some of the practical realities and what might happen in the future. So here we go. Morning, church. <clears throat> Thank you, Kent. And I just want to say I'm eternally grateful for this task. Um, it sounds a lot like law school out there, so this is pretty, uh, pretty familiar to me. Um, so as Kent said, what we're talking about here is a Kansas Supreme Court decision that came down April 26 of 2019. Uh, the name of the case is Hodes and Nasser and Bees PA v. Schmidt. What's significant about this and what's unprecedented about this is that this decision stated that the Kansas Constitution, the Bill of Rights of the Kansas Constitution, contains a fundamental right to an abortion. Now, you're not going to find that text anywhere in the Kansas Constitution. So what's unique about this is the court looked at the provi first provision of the Kansas Constitution. Oh, he's over here. Uh, let me see if it works. Section 1, to be exact, that says that all men are possessed of equal and inalienable natural rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they said, that that text contains two fundamental rights, the fundamental right to personal autonomy and the fundamental right to self-determination. That's not in there. We're going to talk about how they got there, and it's, it's a trip, let me tell you. From those two rights, the court said that we derive a further right, and that right is the right for a pregnant woman to decide whether to continue her pregnancy. This is translated to a right to an abortion. So my job today is to walk you through this majority opinion and to talk about how exactly we got there. And the gist of the logic of the court is this. You guys can help me out one day. I may just have to cue you guys, sorry. Just the logic is this. We start with section one of the Kansas Constitution that says that all men are possessed of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. From there, we derive these two other fundamental rights, personal autonomy, self-determination. And then from there, we get to a right to an abortion. So before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about the underlying facts of the case, if you don't mind. So the case surrounds Senate Bill 95, and it was passed in 2015 by the Kansas legislature. And what this bill did was it prohibited doctors from performing what's called a dilation and evacuation abortion. Now, the details of the procedure are not important here. They're incredibly cruel, and I'm not going to recount them for you. So if you're interested, I would advise you to look those up with your discretion. But what is important here, if you wouldn't mind again, is that upon passing this bill, one more time, one more time, one more time. Thank you. <laughs> so a couple of Overland Park abortion doctors are watching this. They're waiting for it. Probably, they're probably involved in this kind of lobby, and so they wanted to get ahead of the game. As soon as the bill was passed, they brought a lawsuit, which is something you can do if you have standing, because they'd be affected by the bill. And they challenged this bill under two grounds. There was a ground under the U US Constitution, which we know via Roe v. Wade. And there's also what they said, which was a novel argument, a new one, that the Kansas Constitution prohibited this bill. They said it, be, it prohibited this bill because of the fundamental rights that I just mentioned. Um, and as Kent mentioned, there's something we need to note about this that highlights how extreme this decision was. Because this case hasn't actually been to trial yet. We haven't heard any wit witnesses. We haven't seen any evidence. We haven't even started it yet. What issue here is the preliminary injunction which means when they filed this lawsuit, they asked the court to enter an order saying, hey, I want you to freeze this law. We're not, it's not going to go into effect until we have this trial. And so that decision, the decision whether for this law to go into effect is what we're talking about here. Now, this is important because the only thing that the Kansas Supreme Court had to decide was whether we're going to allow this law to go into effect. It didn't need to create any new fundamental rights. It didn't need to swing for the fences with broad sweeping holdings, soaring rhetoric, anything for posterity to cite. But as we know today, it did anyway. The only thing that it needed to do was decide, are we going to let this law go through? And it had plenty of other reasons to base its holding on. But instead, it made the decision. It abused its power, and it made the decision to create a new right in the Kansas Constitution to get there. This, standing alone, is reason enough to be infuriated with what the court did from a separation of powers standpoint. But as we get into even more, the reason how they got there is going to be enough to blow your mind. So let's see how we got there. One more time. There we go. So the doctors argued that Section 1, which is on the left here, Kansas Constitution contains a right to an abortion, and that the Senate bill, which, it, which it prohibits this procedure, violated that right. 
Now, this language over here, all men are possessed of inalienable natural rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Does that sound kind of familiar? Because it should. It's in the Declaration of Independence. Which is, so that we know that the Kansas Constitution language closely tracks the language in the Declaration of Independence. So what the court said is that when in determining what exactly the Kansas Constitution means, we're going to look to the philosophy behind the Declaration of Independence, which makes some sense, right? And we're going to look to what that reason is, and we're going to apply that reason here to see if that gives us an insight. And this is a common legal reasoning pattern, happens all the time. So what they said is they looked to the Declaration of Independence, and they looked to the history of it. And they looked, and they saw, one more time, please, that this philosophy was the product of a man named John Locke. Now, you don't need to know much about Locke's philosophy, except for that Locke was a proponent of something called the state of nature, the law of nature. And this is a very libertarian philosophy. And at the base of it is the tenet that um, a man has free reign of his rights and can exercise his liberty however he pleases so long as it does not impact the liberty of someone else. It's a very live and let live kind of philosophy. And they said that this is what underpinned the Declaration of Independence. This is what the founders were trying to enshrine. So therefore, the court held that these rights are what were at the heart of what the Kansas founders meant when they included this life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in the Kansas Constitution. Ergo, they reasoned that this philosophy should come with it. We should interpret it consistent with that. And therefore, the Kansas Constitution gives us these fundamental rights of personal autonomy, the right to be left alone, and self-determination, the right to determine for myself all kinds of universal truths. So back up for a second. What does all this ivory tower fluff mean? So in the next breath, the court says, he makes, it makes the rubber hit the road, and it defines exactly what this means. It says that at the heart of this natural rights philosophy, the philosophy that John Locke had, is this right for individuals to be free to make choices about how to conduct their own lives to exercise personal autonomy. And the court says that this right should shield the decisions that people make that have substantial impacts on their lives. And they listed out a couple of these types of decisions, the types of decisions that people make on a day-to-day -day basis that have a substantial impact. And among these are decisions about physical health, decisions about family life, family formation. All of these things make it, or impact people's lives drastically on a daily basis. And they impact, importantly here, they impact an individual's pursuit of happiness. And that is how we get our foot in the door. Because the net result of all this, the court concludes, is that this section one creates a fundamental right of personal autonomy, self-determination. I'm going to say that about 50 more times today. I'm sorry. So if it starts to get annoying. But we just need to get that in our heads, because that is what we're, that's the lens we're looking at here. So we have personal autonomy, self-determination. Go to the next slide for me. Go ahead one more time. How do we get to abortion, then? One more time. <laughs> so you might have noticed that personal autonomy, self-determination, what do those mean? Those are incredibly broad, probably rife with the opportunity for someone to take creative liberties with them, right? And that is exactly what happened here. They just begged for someone to take these and to manipulate them because the court said that this right to self-determination, among the litany of other things that it could possibly mean, enables people to make the decisions that affect their physical health, their family life, and family formation. And the court said that each of us has the right to make self-defining and self-governing decisions about these things. The court said that if we deny pregnant women the ability to determine whether to continue her pregnancy would severely limit her right of personal autonomy. We don't care about the unborn child in her womb. What we care about is her right to define for herself where humanity ends and where humanity begins. As I mentioned, because the unborn is not a part of this equation, which is something we'll get to here in a moment, that raises a lot of other issues as to far, how far this decision is going to go. And we'll talk about those here in a second. In the meantime, though, I want to talk about some of the implications of what this means for the court to declare a fundamental right, for the court to say that a woman has this right. And in doing so, I'm going to take the rest of my time to explain exactly how this is going to affect pro-life legislation. So we start with this question of what does it mean exactly that the court has declared a right to an abortion as a fundamental right in the Kansas Constitution? And the answer to this question really requires us to look at how our system of laws in society in the United States are built. 
And it comes to the fact that we have separate constitutions and separate laws on both a federal level, so like United States Supreme Court, Constitution, <coughs> United States Code, that level. And we also have a separate body of law that we're governed by at a state level, the Kansas Supreme Court, the Kansas Constitution, Kansas statutes. And then that's us down there below, we're the people of Kansas. So what we need to realize is that we, the Kansas Constitution down there, the blue one, includes a right that is separate and distinct from the rights that the federal constitution creates. And this is because, as I mentioned, Kansas law is separate from federal law. And this is called federalism. So we don't really need to know what that means, but what does this mean from a practical standpoint? Well, from a practical standpoint, we can have a right that exists at the federal level, but does not exist at the state level. So what that would mean is that a citizen is governed by federal law even though the state that they live in may not have a comparable law. So here's a, here's a tangible example. Um, let's talk about legalization of marijuana, right? So at a federal level, it is still illegal to smoke weed. You can't do that. But if you live in Colorado, there's no state law criminalizing marijuana. So if you go to Colorado and you're caught with weed in your pocket, you violated a federal law, but you haven't violated a state law. So the reverse can also be true, though. So if the federal government does not make something illegal, but a state government does, then, that's, then there's a right created under state law that's not created under federal law. And that's what happened here. The Kansas Constitution has created a right for the right to personal autonomy and self-determination that exists at the blue level that does not exist at the red level. So we can bring this back to Earth one more time. Why does we care about this right here and right now? Let's imagine that tomorrow morning we wake up and our wildest dreams, as far as a political body informed by Christ is concerned, has come true. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. The US Supreme Court has said, we've come to our senses. This was a horrible mistake. We overturned Roe. We overturned all of its progeny, all the cases that cited to it and were built upon it. All gone. Clean slate. No federal right to an abortion. What changes in Kansas? Absolutely nothing. Because our Kansas Constitution now has a right to an abortion. We're at the blue level, and that right exists regardless of what the federal Constitution says. And because the Kansas Supreme Court is the law of the land in Kansas when it comes to Kansas law, the only way to overturn this decision is by either a constitutional amendment or through a new decision. So, one more time. Here's some further significance here. What is so significant about something being a fundamental right? What does that mean? Well, when the court has declared something to be a fundamental right, that means that it is going to provide extreme protections for that right that are above and beyond what one would expect in other circumstances. So the US Supreme Court has created a series of tests that the court will use to examine a law when it implicates a fundamental right. Um, and these are the same tests, incidentally, that the court uses to decide when they're looking at a law that discriminates on the basis of protective class, like race or gender, and there's three of them. So at the lower end, when the court, when someone challenges a law in front of the court that isn't implicating fundamental rights, it's something like um, you have to pay a parking ticket, right? That's gonna get what we call rational basis, the lowest level, almost every law passes this. Also laws that don't discriminate on basis of a protected class. If you go a little bit higher up, you, have a, you pass a law that discriminates on the basis of gender. That's a protected class, but not as protected as things like race or national origin. So we have a higher level of scrutiny that's a little bit more difficult to pass, but still not horrible. At the highest level, though, we have something that's called strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny, you have to understand, is called fatal in fact. They say it's possible logically to pass it, but nothing ever does. This is the test that the court applies when a legislature passes a law that discriminates on the basis of race. Laws that say that people of African-American descent can't vote. They can't go to private establishments to eat barbecue with white people. You have to go to a certain school district because of your race. These laws get the highest and most searching level of scrutiny because when the court applies this test, they are literally looking for any reason to declare the law unconstitutional. This is significant here because the court, in declaring the right to an abortion to be a fundamental right, has said that pro-life legislation gets that highest level of scrutiny. Strict scrutiny for any law that infringes upon a woman's right to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. What this means is, 
pro-life legislation now receives the same treatment that a law that discriminates on the basis of race received. That is nonsensical. Here's the test you have to pass. To pass strict scrutiny, the state has to prove the law serves a compelling state interest of the highest order. It has to be something incredibly important, and the law has to be narrowly tailored to serve that compelling state interest. What does narrowly tailored mean? It means that we look at what the state was trying to accomplish and how they tried to accomplish it through the law that they passed. And if you can think of literally any other reasonable way to accomplish that end that does it better than the way though this law did, it fails. We're done. Unconstitutional. Barely anything passes this test, and you can see why. So what does that mean here? The next question we need to ask, and I'll do this quickly here so we can get to the light at the end of the tunnel. We need to ask how far does this decision go? What kinds of pro-life laws are at risk of being struck down by the courts by these kinds of tests? And what kind of legislation do we think can survive? Well, first of all, do we think laws banning first trimester abortions are gonna survive? Clearly not, right? That infringes clearly on a woman's right to continue a pregnancy. How about second trimester? Again, well actually the law at issue here, SB 95, was banning a procedure that's most commonly used in the second trimester. So that's probably gonna fail too. What about third trimester? What about partial birth abortions? What about anything in between, the gray area? We don't really know the answer to those questions now, but we can get a very strong idea of how the court will rule based on its reasoning and its opinion. Because as we mentioned earlier, the court's decision is entirely devoid of any mention of the rights of the individuals, the unborn. And so in order to determine the scope of this, we can look to how the court compared its test, the test that it laid out here, with how the federal government applies tests to these laws. Because the federal right to an abortion came from a different place than the state law to an abortion came. It came from a right to privacy that the court found through the 4th and 14th Amendments. And you don't need to know how that happened. It's really trippy if you want to ask me about it later. I'd be glad to talk to you about it. But it's really boring. So, but what's important here is they said that this right to privacy creates a right to an abortion. And the test that they applied at the federal level is called an undue burden test. And what's significant is this undue burden test considers the stage of development that the child is in, in the womb, in determining whether this law is unconstitutional. The more they become a person, the higher the interest is, and therefore the easier it is to pass that test. Kansas Constitution wasn't so generous. The Kansas Supreme Court has said that these rights don't look at all to the right to the unborn. Our test applies, our court will apply a strict scrutiny test regardless of the stage of development. They don't couch it at all in terms of how far along the woman is in pregnancy. All they say is that any law that infringes on a woman's right to decide whether to continue a pregnancy gets strict scrutiny. Straight there. Just a question for you guys. Just internally brainstorm, think about it. Can you think of any pro-life statue worth the ink that is printed with that doesn't somehow infringe on a woman's right to decide whether to continue her pregnancy? I can't. I'm going to end quickly now with just a couple more parting thoughts and some predictions that kind of further underscore how dark this decision is. We can't forget that at the center of this decision was not the right to an abortion. The center of this decision was of two fundamental rights, and you probably heard me say them a hundred times today, self-determination and personal autonomy. That is what the court created. And from there, we got right to an abortion, but they did not limit those rights. They did not put an end, a line in the sand to say where those rights began and where they end. So, make no mistake, these general rights are gonna be the same rights that are invoked later on to support other kinds of legislation that adversely affect the culture war. And I put a couple up there just from a brainstorm that might be supported by this. Assisted suicide, right to die legislation, that's clearly self-determination of when I wanna end my life, personal autonomy. Transgender homosexual rights, those are clearly solidified under this. What about protections for Christian adoption agencies? If we're saying that a Christian adoption couple doesn't have to, hasn't have to um, uh, provide a child to, an, to people who violate their faith or the tenets of their conscience, how does that not impede these rights? Crisis pregnancy centers, and this last one is kind of a tongue in cheek, but it, I think it's equally valid. You can go sue the DMV. I mean, let's think about this hypothetical. Let's say there's a certain state agency out there that issues maybe registration cards to people that you know allow them to operate certain uh, mechanical transportation devices, cars, and let's further assume that these licenses provide only two options for my gender, neither of which I agree with. 
do these not infringe on my right of self-determination? Just food for thought. This irresponsible decision has codified something we already know, which is in Romans 125, and it's put these into our legal rules that shape our society. These rights of self-determination codify pride and make us the gods and the arbiters of our own destiny, and it codifies our fleshly proclivity to askew the truth in favor of our own desires. Paul put it best when he said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit first about the dissent. A dissenting opinion is when an appellate court makes a decision and then a, a judge or justice disagrees with it. He has the right, he or she has the right to, to say why. And in this case, we have one justice who made a dissenting opinion, and that's a guy by the name of Justice Caleb Stiegel. And we have a connection here with Justice Stiegel. Our own Steve Iliff taught Justice Stiegel Latin when the justice was in second grade. And we've got some other connections as well. I'm going to read to you some of the things that, that the justice says in his dissenting opinion, and uh, I'll be a little bit more explicit than, than, than Chris was because the justice said it, and you need to know. And he starts broadly by, by, by with a recognition that the way that we've always operated as a state is as a legislature comes to a general agreement about what ought to be the law, and they set it. And he says that historically, quote, the proper conditions for just rule are met through participatory consent to secure and promote the common welfare, unquote. What he's saying there is we elect people and they make the law, okay? Then he says, however, today, a majority of this court dramatically departs from this consensus. Today, we hoist our sail and navigate the ship of state out of its firm anchorage in the harbor of common good and onto the uncertain waters of the sea of fundamental values. Today, we issue the most significant and far-reaching decision this court has ever made. And you can understand from Chris's presentation that Justice Stiegel is correct. He argues, quote, the majority abandons the original public meaning of Section 1 of the Kansas Constitutional Bill of Rights and paints the interest in unborn life championed by millions of Kansans as rooted in an ugly prejudice. And for this reason, I, Justice Stiegel, dissent. He then points out that the court has based its argument on the words and the thoughts of great men. Uh, mentioned John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, William Blackstone or some of those. And he says that the majority has basically said that these great men would celebrate and enshrine a right to nearly unfettered abortion access. In this imagined world, the Liberty Bell rings every time a baby in the womb loses her arm, unquote. That's what they're saying. In this process, he, he, uh, Justice Stiegel makes clear that the majority has framed its arguments against this abortion ban in the context of the fight of women for equal rights. Uh, and then he says flatly, quote, a ban on dismembering a living human being in the womb is not inherently sexist and discriminatory, unquote. And he quotes the United States Supreme Court, which says that opposition to abortion in no way reflects uh, animus or hatred or discrimination of women. In fact, it ignores completely the fact that most of the pro-life movement is made up of women. In essence, Justice Stiegel says the court pretends to speak for all women, and he calls this a ruse, uh, where, which is to totally discount the intent of the framers of the Kansas Constitution by the majority using this legitimate struggle of women for equal rights to paint the founders of the Kansas Constitution as sexist. The court has completely distracted the reader's attention from their slight of hand. Quote, 
By the time the majority soars to new heights above the paternalistic attitude of the Wyandotte Convention on the wings of constitutional values, leaving behind the accumulated prejudices of two centuries, the reader has completely forgotten that in the beginning of this opinion, the majority says that when we interpret the Constitution, the guiding principle is that we look to the intent of the makers and adopters of the Constitution. And then they go on to completely ignore the intent of the makers and, adoption and adopters of the Constitution. Now I'll leave it to you. Is that illogic or is that deception? Now, thinking broadly here, this is the battle within our judicial system. It's a battle between those who believe that when laws are enacted or when constitutions are made, they are fixed. They have a fixed meaning. That's Justice Stiegel. As opposed to those who believe that the law can be reinterpreted in any way we desire. That's the other six justices. Majority, as Chris has said, found these fundamental rights of personal autonomy, uh, personal determination. And they're not there, folks. They have made these things up, just as the US Supreme Court made up their right found in the Constitution of the United States. Now, this judicial philosophy is sometimes referred to as a living constitution. And you see how convenient that is, that you can make anything out of the Constitution that you want. And it largely depends on social attitudes and, frankly, the philosophy of the judges or justices making that determination. And Chris has already referred to a number of things that this could mean for us in the future on a whole broad spectrum of issues. It's not, this is not just an abortion decision. This, is, this has to do with everything, okay? Uh, going back to abortion, I don't think it's too much of a logical jump for folks like this to say, if the intent was to abort the child and it did not succeed, she has a fundamental right to finish the job afterwards. So we're no different than New York or Virginia right now. But this is also the conflict between the world and those who hold to the ultimate law of the Bible. That it is the creator, the potter, who gives us purpose for life and defines the limits of our life. Not man, the pot. This is the cultural lie that is now facing us squarely here in Kansas. Now, you might ask, what good is one person's dissent? Well, it may very well serve a purpose because a dissent can be used by other courts, perhaps even a future Kansas Supreme Court in briefs to convince them, maybe even the United States Supreme Court, because he, Justice Stiegel, is so logical, so convicting, that he might actually convince somebody that this decision flies in the face of reality. Now, you and I, on our level, we have some lessons learned here. And one of them is that... Uh, Elections have consequences. Think about this. Whatever you think of President Trump, there is nobody you will find out there who would, not, who would disagree with the fact that if we had a President Clinton right now, we would at this point have a six to three majority on the US Supreme Court in favor of abortion. No question. Yes, I know, God could intervene. But if he were to intervene, he would be shocking at least one person out of her pantsuit, okay? Because that was her clearly stated intent. Another one is that this whole thing turns on not the radical pro-abortion people, the block of people, maybe the 25, 20 or 25% of people out there it turns on the people in the middle. 
Those are the people making the decision here. Kansas had one of the most liberal governors in the nation in Kathleen Sebelius, and she won two terms. And she was elected, not by Democrats, but by Republicans in the middle. Is there a silver lining here? Hard to see. However, this may be God's way of telling the church, now you know. You may not see it, but you know that my image is being torn apart. Do you care enough? to change hearts by bringing others to me through my son. Folks, if this doesn't wake us up, nothing will. So, what can you and I do? There's some practical things. We can volunteer and we can support pro-life organizations and crisis pregnancy centers. Lion and Lamb supports the Lifeline Children's Service here services here locally in their efforts. We support CareNet, which helps crisis pregnancy centers all over the country. You know you can get up and attend a pro-life day or a rally. I've been to some of those and I've seen some of you there. I appreciate that. But you know who shows up in mass? It's the Catholics. Where are the Christian schools? Where are the homeschoolers? Are our young people understanding that this is an issue that faces them? Of course, you can support and work for candidates who have a biblical worldview. And finally, getting back to this vital issue, the church has to find a way to reach out to and connect with and communicate with those people in the middle. We've got to find a way to help them understand how devastating their decisions are. And of course, this is all covered. We accomplish all this through the gospel. If we're simply serious about that, that will take care of the whole thing. Speaking more generally and, and, and biblically here, uh, we need to set the example as the best citizens. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 13, we are to be subject, submissive to the governing authorities because there's no authority except from God, instituted by God, and they are God's servants for our good, and they are ministers for God. Now, there may be times when governmental coercion causes us to choose between God and man. But remember, Paul wrote that and was later imprisoned, and historians tell us, tells us he was beheaded by a very, very cruel government to which he called us to submit. Remember Daniel served wicked kings effectively for God's purposes. Of course, we must pray for those in authority. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 to, to offer prayers for all who are in high positions. All, I think, means President Trump, it means Governor Kelly, it means even the justices of the Supreme Court of Kansas, and of course, the United States Supreme Court. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because God desires all people, including the above mentioned, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We've also got to remember that there is a battle and we are equipped for that battle, but it's not against people. Ephesians 6 tells us we are to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Finally, we've got to remember that God is in control. Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
in Jeremiah 1, uh, young Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, is talking to God. And it, it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And you see in this little passage here about Jeremiah, a worldview that political events do not happen randomly just through our human causes and effects. God has the power to pull down and build up any government and any institution, and he has reasons for doing so. Now, we don't understand how he works, and sometimes it mystifies us like we're sitting right now with this decision, but he is sovereign over politics, over rulers, presidents, governors, courts, even the Kansas Supreme Court. The question is, will you and I allow ourselves to be used by God Will, we, will you and I respond to his call on our lives? Eric? I really appreciate the opportunity to get an opportunity to speak with you today about this incredible topic. It, my mind goes back uh, even haltingly uh, to 2005 when um, I was deputy uh, Chief Deputy Attorney General for the state of Kansas. I ran the Attorney General's office for uh, Attorney General Phil Klein. And a similar situation, although not as grave, uh, was before the Supreme Court and the Attorney General asked me to make uh, the oral argument before the Kansas Supreme Court uh, on what is called the Alpha Beta case. Alpha Beta uh, was the two clinics, uh, George Tiller's clinic as well as Planned Parenthood's clinic, and the issue before the court uh, was something similar in that it was a uh, writ of mandamus. We don't need to get into what that is, but uh, the essential uh, reasoning that, uh, that was being argued that day was whether or not the state of Kansas had the right, the state of Kansas had the right to conduct a criminal investigation into whether or not the abortion clinics that currently existed in the state of Kansas were performing their abortions legally. And the issue directly before the court was a balancing of the state's right to investigate criminal conduct with the right that a woman has to the privacy of her medical records. And what the Supreme Court decided they had to decide, because utilizing the fundamental interests and uh, test, the state has a fundamental interest in law and order. It has a fundamental interest in seeing that its criminal laws are enforced. And the only way you get enforcement is first by investigation. Now, again, that was the issue before the court, whether or not the state had a right to investigate the doctors that were providing the abortions and the record of the abortion procedure itself that existed in the medical records, whether we could peer into those medical records to determine whether or not criminal laws had been violated. Now, they did decide that we had the right to investigate. And what did we find? We found that individuals were having abortions for virtually any purpose. 
and that is not uh, that was was not allowed. Now, of course, that too is up in the air. So let it not be said that you now have not been informed. Because much like the church in Germany, as the Nazis came to power, many denied they ever knew what was going on to the Jews. You now know more than 90, probably 8% of the people in the state of Kansas about this topic. Now, you must decide for yourself, is this the line in the sand upon which you will not go past? We are accountable for what it is that we know, and you now know. So where is the outcry? Is the outcry in the media? What you've heard today is appalling. Some might even say it is sickening. It is both. So where's the outcry? Have you heard an outcry from your neighbors? Have you heard an outcry on television? Do you read it in the papers? You do not. If there is going to be a moral standard raised up, it's going to be from the individual who created holy morals, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If it is not the church, just like in Germany, if it is not the church, who can we depend upon to hold up the moral standard? It is us, and it is only in the final analysis those who worship and respect a holy God that have the ability to pass on a moral standard for a godly nation, for a godly people. So how did we get here? We got here by taking the attitude that it's really not our principal responsibility. It is someone else's. It is those who participate in government elections. I don't have time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ability. Well, you do have the time, and you do have the ability, and you should have the inclination. Do you feel that your world is getting smaller? Do you feel like what your freedoms should be are being impinged upon? This is what it is that all nations have felt in the past that have not trod a holy path of following our Lord. As we've gotten further and further and further away of adherence to his law, our world, the Christian's world, gets smaller. Now, God is sovereign, as Ken has pointed out, and God is in control. And here we are. It isn't God that is somehow deficient. It is, in fact, the church that is somehow deficient, knowing God's truth. That's why we are where we are today. So it's not all gloom and doom. We still have the right to gather. We still have the right to worship. We have the right to pray. So we're going to use that right, hopefully, of assembly and the ability to exercise our freedom of speech under the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States to tell the message. And the message is this. The legislature of the state of Kansas is in a position to address the issue of whether or not the question of a constitutional amendment reversing this decision is going to occur. The legislature is in a position to determine whether or not a constitutional amendment to overturn this decision will occur. Two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate are going to have to vote in favor of putting a constitutional amendment on the ballot for you to vote on it, your neighbors to vote on it, for everyone eligible to vote, to vote on it to determine whether or not this genuinely is the will of the people of the state of Kansas. But we aren't there today, folks. I replaced a pro-choice 
state senator when I became state senator. And we don't have two-thirds today in the state senate to put that constitutional amendment on the ballot. We don't have two-thirds of the Kansas House of Representatives to put that constitutional amendment on the ballot. How do we get there? Well, we get there through persuasion. Uh, and this is where it is, real briefly, compromises that you should know about are probably going to take place, likely, maybe not an, assur uh, an assurity, but it's likely that there'll be things traded in order to get two-thirds in the House, in order to get two-thirds in the Senate. And one of the things that may be traded are things like Medicaid expansion. Some of you may be for Medicaid expansion. Uh, I think that a majority of both, I think it can be said with clarity, that a majority of both the House and the Senate uh, want Medicaid expansion. But it has not procedurally been possible to pass that law because I, I would like to think that God's hand is in the middle of this and the Democrats in, in the state of Kansas want it very, very badly and, and I think that a number of, of Republicans do as well. But if in fact they want it bad enough, they may in fact come around to allowing the people to vote on this issue. And that's what happens in your legislature, folks. Issues are traded off against other issues to make laws, whether you like it or not, if it, look, if it sounds distasteful. These are the real things that happen in your legislature every day. And it's up to you to decide who it is that makes those decisions. So there's another issue that's going to be talked about that you'll hear about, and that is not a constitutional amendment to change this ruling, but another constitutional amendment to change the method by which we select Supreme Court justices. Both may end up being on the ballot next year. So what do we do between now and next year? I think first of all, we need to organize to the degree that we understand that there's going to be a campaign, okay? If we are fortunate enough to make the compromises necessary to get the two-thirds of the House and the two-thirds of the Senate to allow you to vote on this issue, we are going to have to run a campaign. And we're going to have to run a campaign against the other side. And I want you to think about all of the forces that are on the other side of this constitutional amendment should it become a ballot issue. You're going to have the Kansas Bar Association. You're going to have the Kansas Medical Society. You're going to have the teachers, KNEA. You're going to have all of these interest groups that are, are geared, they're created to dump money into issues so that they can become law. Well, who will be on the other side? That's a rhetorical question, um, but you can fill the blank in. We are going to have to fill the void that others, we would ask others to fill with us, but they're not with us ideologically. So we've got to fill that void on the other side, and that means things like walking door to door. It means getting your neighbors that are like-minded out to vote. It means creating uh, commercials and doing all of the things that are necessary in a typical campaign to fight for the right of the unborn but for your personal rights as a Christian. So all of these things will need to be done. Uh, there is a lot of conversation that, are, that is going on right now as it relates to when this ballot initiative would be best to be heard whether or not we do it at a primary election or whether we do it at a general election, all of those things in the weeds are incredibly important. Um, and they'll be discussed in the coming months uh, during the next legislative session. I've heard a lot of, of talk about impeachment. Why don't we just impeach uh, the Supreme Court? Uh, you know that impeachment's possible. 
It certainly is part of the Constitution. But this is why it is we won't impeach anyone. Because we know that if, in fact, we're successful, the way that impeachment works is there is a trial in the House of Representatives. I'm sorry. There is a vote of impeachment. Um, but there is a trial in the Senate. And so if, if uh, the House of Representatives decides that there have been high crimes and misdemeanors committed, they can forward a bill of impeachment to the Senate, and the Senate has the trial and, and the subsequent vote. Vote in the Senate has to be two-thirds. But here's the point. Let's say we impeached everybody but our good friend Caleb Steele. Who would replace the Supreme Court justice? It would be the current governor of the state of Kansas who is starkly pro-choice. And I'll tell you what it is that she would do. She would replace the aging, now impeached, Supreme Court justices with very, very young. You only have to be 30 to be on the Supreme Court of the state of Kansas. And she would pack the Supreme Court with pro-death judges. And we would be in a worse situation than we were before we began the impeachment process. So the way that we're going to change these things is through the amendment to the Constitution way. And the way we're going to change these things is by changing the method of selection. And currently, we retain our Supreme Court justices through a nomination process. Uh, so there's a nomination committee that forwards three names to the governor. And the governor chooses amongst those three names. And then the, uh, the person is appointed. That's the end of the process. There is no Senate oversight like there is in the federal government. So we're going to try and change the method of selection to put the Senate in a position to having to confirm any appointment made by the governor of the state of Kansas. Uh, and that will, in fact, be very quickly addressed uh, when we come back into session on the 29th of May. Uh, it's SCR 1610. It's uh, Senate Concurrent Resolution 1610. I was given, uh, you bet, I was given till 9.50 and I've run seven minutes over. So if there are any questions, uh, and I mean of the three of us, um, we'd be more than happy to entertain them. Any limitations? Yes. I think that, that you know, Chris. Chris you mentioned briefly as long yeah. as your rights don't affect somebody else, they kind of gloss over real quickly. I'm just wondering yeah. is that enshrined in law? And yeah. does that then come down to the person who has the unborn? Go ahead, Chris, and, and give it a good answer to that. <laughs> uh, so, so it's worth noting that the Lockean philosophy that's based on is far more extreme, I think, than what we actually have. Um, because in his mind, it's the very libertarian, the live and let live, as long as I don't infringe on yours, you don't infringe on mine, we're good. However, I think there are certain limits that, based on what we have now, the, the, the cheeky answer to your question is, well, yeah, this did that, this enshrined that in law. I think the real answer is, we know that those types of laws that infringe on those rights are, in, are uh, subject to strict, strict scrutiny. And when in strict scrutiny, like I said, it's, it's theoretically possible to pass, and, but it takes a lot. And I think you see certain laws, like for example, a criminal law, a law saying like something against robbery obviously would pass because of the high compelling state interest in preserving the safe health and safety of its citizens. And, that and then especially when they're with regards to stealing property from someone by force, and you would say that this law is narrowly tailored to accomplish that. So it's a certain instances, I think we do see certain limitations on that right of personal autonomy that would survive the scrutiny test. However, as it relates to our current context, the court has made it clear here that all the traditional means of, of showing a compelling state interest, namely the fact that you have a personhood of an unborn child, don't actually apply. We're not going to look at that. And so it becomes very difficult to create a compelling state interest. It becomes very difficult to show narrowly tailored in order for a law to survive. I don't know if that answers your question or if you guys want to. Yeah, I just want to say, that I think the, the U.S. Supreme Court put us in this position because they refused to look at the issue as to whether a child was a person, okay? And I think, this may be terribly wishful thinking, but that's 
the real silver bullet. It's a, if it, exactly a right. Now, keep in mind that there are legal scholars out there who are not sure that we have five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. We have five pro-life justices, but that is, there are varyings, there are varying spectrum. And so whether we could ever get to personhood, which is really the final answer, and it's the only logical one, genetically and all that, and I think there's a lot of good evidence for it. And we all understand it, but most people out there haven't thought about it. But we're not sure we're out of the woods, even with the U.S. Supreme Court at this point. Real quickly, Steve. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think you're, you may be getting into the, you know, do I obey God or, or man? Uh, we don't know. You know, yeah, laws of, you know, conscience laws are still there, and, and we, we support those. And there's a good argument for them, you know. But it's going to be litigated. I, I agree with you. It's going to come up. And uh, hospitals and medical providers are going to be establishing their own protocols and that sort of thing. So it, could, it can come up on that local level as well. Esther, real quick. No, I mean, I, th I think Chris, Chris may have mentioned that, that the U.S. Supreme Court said in the third trimester back then, which viability is becoming earlier and earlier, then the state may act to protect the potential human life there. However, they provided an exception for the woman's health, which is undefined, which could be, I want to I be in a bathing suit this summer. It can be that simple. It can be emotional health as well. So we have a, it's a, it's a loophole a truck can, can drive through. So there really is no limitation. So New York has passed a law saying any time until birth. And the, the practice is even after birth, we allow the child to die. After having a baby, yeah. Well, I, I don't know that we'll get there where the, 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 the woman herself can murder the child, but the doctors can. They're doing it right now. They can allow the child to, to, to die. We're kind of out of, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're out of time, but <laughs> if you've got a little one, go, please go get that little one right now. Good. Yvette, it's how it is that I became state senator. The precinct committeemen and committee women of both political parties are the ones that fill vacancies. So if you have a vacancy in public office, we just had one in sheriff, okay, you take the party that the person creating the vacancy, uh, you take that party. In this particular instance, the sheriff was a Republican, so all of the Republican precinct committeemen and committee women are the ones that fill that vacancy. Now, how do you become a precinct person? First of all, if you have any questions about that, you can visit with me, you can visit with um, a number of people in the room that are precinct people. All you need to do is either be appointed, if there's a vacancy in your precinct and there is no precinct person, the chairman of the Republican or Democrat parties can unilaterally fill that appointment just by them saying, you want to be a precinct person? Well, great, you are a precinct person if there's a vacancy in your precinct. But every August, pardon me, every other August in an even-numbered year, precinct people are elected. And so if you got that appointment, you would stand for election if you desired to do so at the next primary election in an even-numbered year. And that means you, too, would have to get out and walk door-to-door, -door, maybe, or send postcards saying, Please vote for me for the Republican precinct person in your precinct. That's, in short, how it is that it happens. There are a ton of vacancies. Please check. It's so important for you to uh, be, be active this way. Yes, sir.
No. You can be a girl if you want to be. Huh? All right, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing, but men do not have a choice. They don't, in, in the abortion decision. So you, will, you need to work on that, Joe, work on that. That might, that might go somewhere now that we've all got personal autonomy. All right, I think Sue was the last one. Sure. Good point. Hey, thank you guys. Uh, Mr. Chris. <laughs> You're talking about the, the safe harbor, the harbor family things. Yeah. What, what Tris is talking about is, you know, a woman's uh, considering an abortion and she talks to somebody at Lifeline and said, we've got people who can help you with taking care of this child and that sort of thing. All right. We're going to stop it there. Feel free to talk to us about other things, but thank you so much. Please use what you've got and spread this to your friends. God bless you all.